morning, Deer Creek. Good to be with you guys this morning. We're going to dive right in. So if you have your Bible, open up to Romans chapter 1. And remember, we just started a series last week on the book of Romans. And we said that Romans was basic Christianity. Okay, which means when Paul was writing this letter to the Romans, what he was trying to convey is here are the central truths that all Christians hold in common. Okay, these are the, the pillars on which our faith rests. So he calls it basic Christianity. That's what uh, one commentator called it. And that's where we're going to be studying this morning. If you don't have a Bible or if maybe you're not familiar with the Bible and you have one in front of you, the Bible, uh, the book of Romans is the sixth book in the Bible. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and then Romans in the New Testament. So that's how you find it in the New Testament, the sixth book. Before that, let's pray in light of Psalm 119, where God writes this. He says, teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. Give me understanding, that I may keep your law and observe it with my heart. Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Father in heaven, we pray that you would now teach us your statutes, that we would know your truth, God, and that you would teach it to us through the reading and the preaching of scripture. We also pray that you would give us understanding and that we would keep these things in our heart, and that it would lead us to be people who walk in your paths and delight in your paths, God. Delight in them more than any other delight that this world has to offer. We pray that, and we pray that now as we read this book of Romans. In Jesus' name, by the power of your spirit, amen. Well, there's a great tension in uh, reading the Bible and teaching the Bible, and that's this, that on the one hand, you really get to make a great announcement of the greatest news that the world's ever known. And you get to stand up before people and tell them this great news. But the tension is, on the other hand, is there are a lot of parts and themes in the Bible that are extremely difficult, uh, particularly those parts that have to do with human sin. And one pastor, his name was Donald Barnhouse, I think he put it well. He said, when it comes to teaching the Bible, it would be pleasant not to have to teach on those subjects. But if one sets out to teach the Bible, it's necessary to consider all of the truth that God has delivered to us, and we have no right of choice. And sometimes if you're just reading through a particular Bible passage, you realize, yeah, we don't have that choice. It's right there, so we have to talk about it. And this morning, you know, we have to confront ourselves with this bad news that Paul gives us. He actually starts out this letter to the Romans with the bad news first. Last week, he gave us an introduction of who he is, why he was writing a little bit, and wanted to establish a groundwork for why he's writing to the Romans. And now, to start off his message, he starts with the bad news first. And I I like to think of, you know, these two different emphases in the Bible as kind of a pair of glasses or a pair of contact lenses. So if you wear glasses or if you wear contacts, you know you can't just have one functioning contact lens, okay? Because then you're going to start walking around, you're going to bump into things, things are going to get blurry, you're going to fall, and things are going to go wrong for you. So you have to have two functioning lenses in order to see clearly, and I think the Bible is the same way. You have to hold the tension of the good news and the bad news clearly, and you cannot understand either one without the other. So let's remind ourselves really quickly what the good news is, because we talked about it a bit last week. What's the good news of the Bible? Well, the good news of the Bible, Paul really summarizes in a thesis statement. You remember in high school, your teacher said that when you're writing a paper, you want to start with your thesis, right? It's your argument in a nutshell. 
That way, as people are going through whatever it is you're writing, they know what you're trying to communicate as you're communicating it. Here's Paul's thesis. We saw it last week. It was Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. He said, this is what my message is about. He says it's about the gospel, and it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, the Jew first and also the Greek. For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. That's Paul's thesis statement, okay? His gospel and good news. So what does it mean? Well, it means this, that Jesus, God's son, has come down and he's taken on flesh and he first fulfilled all of the righteous requirements of God's law. From cradle to cross his entire life, he perfectly fulfilled the law of God, which means he's without sin. I love the quote is from Adrian Rogers. He said, my best 15 minutes can't get me into heaven because he knows that he can't spend 15 minutes without sin. Jesus, from cradle to cross, life to death, lived a life completely without sin. And not only that, he also paid the penalty for our sin on the cross, dying the death that we deserve for our sin and bearing that punishment in his stead. So now through faith in Jesus and faith in him alone, trusting and resting in him and what he's done, a person can have a right and restored and eternal relationship with God. That's Paul's message, his good news. That's one lens. And that's some meaty theological kind of language, right? So let me put you know, some good texture around it or some color around it. Imagine World Cup soccer, okay? If you like soccer, I don't know why, but anyway, you're watching soccer, and it's, it's the gold medal match. Last minutes of the game, it's a tie game, and uh, buzzer stops, and it goes to penalty kicks. Now, everybody kicks, but it comes down to the one last guy on the field. If he scores, his team wins the gold. And he stands there, even though he's the only one on the field, if he scores a goal, even though the other players and the coaches and everybody he represents are on the sideline, if he scores that goal, they all get credited with the victory nonetheless. And now in the gospel that Paul wants to proclaim, he is saying that Jesus has represented us and because of his death and his life, we are forgiven. That is not guilty before God because of his death. And we are also perfect and righteous because his life represented ours where we failed so miserably. It's all earned by Jesus Christ. That's the first lens, the good news. But Paul's a master teacher, okay? He's a master teacher, so all of you who are teachers, you know you're trying to anticipate questions that your audience might have before they ask it. That way you're prepared for it right when they do ask it. And one person in Rome probably would have lifted his hands and said, but wait, why do we even need the righteousness of Jesus? Why is that something that we need? Why is this such a big deal? And why do you care about this over other things, Paul? After all, if you look around Roman culture, there's a lot of bad things going on. Why are you so focused on the righteousness of God? Why is that such an important message? And this is where Paul brings in the second lens, the bad news, is because Paul says 
that right alongside the gospel revealed is something else that's revealed from God, and we find it in verse 18, beginning in chapter 1. Paul says, you need the good news for, because the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and righteousness of men. Do you see Paul's argument here? He's saying that you and I need the good news of God's righteousness revealed because of the bad news of God's wrath revealed against our unrighteousness. These are the two lenses that you have to see clearly here. So what's God's wrath? What's God's wrath? J.I. Packer uh, recently died and one of the most influential books that I had ever read as I was first learning about Christianity in college was the book Knowing God, and he defines wrath in this way. He says, one of the most striking things about the Bible is the vigor which with, with which both Testaments, new and old, emphasize the reality and terror of God's wrath. The Bible labors to point out that just as God is good to those who trust him, so he is terrible to those who do not. His wrath is the right and necessary reaction to objective moral evil. God is angry where anger is called for. And I want to note a few things about J.I. Packer's definition there. The first is that God's wrath is biblical. And it's throughout the Old and New Testaments. In fact, the Bible has over 20 words that refer to God's wrath. And there are nearly 600 important passages on the subject. So this isn't something that's just incidental to Scripture. This isn't kind of like a secondary thing that the Bible talks about. This is very much a primary thing. Nahum, who was a prophet in Israel, when he was bringing a message to God's people, he started out with these words. This, I, I wouldn't suggest opening up a sermon in this way, by the way. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is a whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him, the world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him, but with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies in darkness. That's a cheery passage, isn't it? So the wrath of God is a biblical concept. It's something that God wants to highlight about himself to kind of present us with that reality. But second, God's wrath is good. Did you catch that in the Nahum passage? His wrath is good, which means it's very unlike human wrath, by the way. I don't know what you think of when you think of human wrath. And this is one of the reasons we have problem with the wrath of God, right? We look at humans who are wrathful, and then we define God accordingly. We think God is just a projection of our human wrath. And I don't know about you, when I think of human wrath, I kind of think of Homer Simpson, right? Bart Simpson leaves a skateboard around, or he says a snide comment at the dinner table. And what's Homer Simpson's response? He strangles his son, Right? 
And, and that's how we think of, of God's wrath, or we think of wrath in general. We think it's just this self-indulgent, irritable, unwarranted outburst and rage at somebody who burnt our stake, right? But in the Bible, God's wrath is good. It's because it's the wrath of a judge, right? Just as we would expect a good judge to punish murder and child abuse, so too God meets our unrighteousness, our sin, with his wrath and judgment. It's a good wrath. And I find it fascinating. Did you notice, back to, back to Romans, okay, so if you have Romans open, in verse 18, did you notice that Paul said, God's wrath is revealed from heaven. Not will be revealed from heaven, but that it's currently and presently revealed as we speak, as, as we're sitting here right now. So, yes, to be sure, right, there's a coming day of judgment where God will release his wrath in full, but it is being revealed today. And you can think of this kind of like a dam. Have you ever been to the Hoover Dam, right? You know that this massive man-made structure that's just huge is holding back this massive force of water. And God says one day, that dam that's holding back his wrath will be removed and all of his wrath will be poured out in full. But if you look at it today, right, just a little bit of water's trickling through. In fact, they let some trickle through. So when Paul says that the wrath of God is revealed, that's how he has this in mind, is God's wrath is seeping in. It's streaming out. It can be seen in creation. And one day it's coming that God will finally and fully remove the barrier that's holding it back. So, Paul, in this passage, and here's what we're going to look at. He's going to look at two major questions. The first is, why is God wrathful? And we're going to see that in verses 18 through 23. Why is he wrathful on the unrighteous and the ungodly? And then second, how? How is God pouring out his wrath? We'll see that in verses 24 through 32. So first, why is God's wrath revealed? And this is really surprising because we usually don't think in these terms, but God has a surprising reality uh, for us. He says that the reason God's wrath is revealed because we're suppressing the truth. Verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who, by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For... God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they're without excuse. So what Paul is saying here is that creation is a lot like a, a piece of art. When you see a piece of art, right, you see a Rembrandt or you see a Mozart or a Picasso, and you look at that piece of art, the natural question that should arise in your mind is, who is that artwork's creator? When you see a sculpture, you want to know who is the maker of this sculpture. And Paul here is saying that same thing, that though God is invisible, the visible things of creation demonstrate that they exist because of him. The creation points to the creator. In other words, 
every piece of creation from the grain of sand on a seashore to a supernova in space, all of it declares there is a God who is wise, who is all-powerful, and who has a divine nature, who is not like us that created all of this. I like the way that theologian John Calvin put it. He was a, a 16th century theologian and writer. He said that creation is like a glorious theater. You know, when we go to a theater, right, and we go to see the glory of Leonardo DiCaprio or Scarlett Johansson, that's who we go to see the glory of. Calvin was saying, when you look out at creation, you see the glory of a creator. It's inescapable. You have to see it. And I actually find this really staggering that scientific consensus is building around what's known as this fine-tuned argument for the existence of God. Maybe you've heard of this, but the fine-tuned existence of God argument goes like this, that there are things in our universe that make life possible, that if they were off by just a fraction, life in the universe, as we know it, would not exist. Uh, there's a... Um, physicist at Arizona State University, his name is Paul Davies. He says, when he looks at this evidence, the entire universe is balanced, as it were, on a knife's edge. So the entire ability for there to be life in the universe is balanced on a, on a knife's edge. He continues, it would be total chaos in our universe if at any moment one of the natural constants of our universe were off even slightly. And one good example of this is the Big Bang, right? Hear this stat. The explosive force necessary to produce life out of the Big Bang had to be within one part of 10 to the 60th power of what it actually was in order for life to be possible. Now, I don't know what that means, but I'm gonna try and explain it as best as I understand it. Here's what it means. In other words, if the force behind the Big Bang wasn't exactly what it was, then the likelihood of there being life in the universe, any life, is this percentage, 0, 0.0, followed by 56 zeros, 1%. That's the likelihood of there being life anywhere in the universe, if the Big Bang didn't have the explosive force that it did, is 0.0000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000
The numbers one calculates from the facts seem so overwhelming as to put this conclusion almost beyond question. Hoyle said when he first encountered the fine-tuned argument for the existence of God, he said he was, quote, greatly shaken. And why is this? It's because the things about God looking at our creation are plain to us because God has shown it to us in the things that have been made. We live in a glorious theater. Paul says that what can be known about God is plain. Theologians call this general revelation. General meaning every person sees it. It doesn't matter. You don't have to be a Christian to see it. You don't have to be a religious person to see it. You don't have to be a a spiritual person to see it. The things about God are plain to them because God has shown it. He's revealed it generally to everyone. That means if you have eyes or if you have ears, then you know that there's a God. I used to teach youth, and when I said that, you have to have eyes or ears to know that there's a God. One kid raised his hand, and he said, well, what about Helen Keller? I was like, I don't have any answers for you. I'm sorry. You know, if you don't have eyes or ears, we're going to see in a couple weeks why you still would know God. But nonetheless, this holds true, that if you are a creation with a beating heart, you know that there's a God. But here's the question that a lot of people have, right? The question is this. It's that, hey, wait, if, if there's all this evidence that there's a creator, who's created the universe, then how can people still disbelieve in God? And this is not just an abstract question. This is a personal question, isn't it? Because many of us have people in our life that don't believe in God. This is the questions of our spouses, our children, our family members, our loved ones, our coworkers. Why do they not believe in God if the evidence is so overwhelmingly on the side of their being a creator? Well, Paul gives us the answer, and he says it's because the problem isn't intellectual in our minds. The problem is moral in our heart. Notice how he says it. In verse 18, he says, The wrath of God is revealed against, from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who, by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. I was recently going to Starbucks to meet an old friend of mine, and my friend was meeting with his friend who didn't believe in God, and he knew that I was a pastor. And he asked me, actually, he said, hey, why is it that you believe in God? And I gave him a couple of reasons and shared a little bit about how I came to faith in God. And, you know, he said to me essentially this. He said, well, I can understand why you need that to be true. And I asked him, well, what do you mean by that? And he said, well, I think people believe in God to give them comfort. They need God to be true because it gives them a sense of security and hope beyond the hard things of life. But I personally don't need that. And see, kind of his underlying assumption was this, that the reason people believe in God is kind of like it's a psychological crutch, right? That life's really hard and we need something to lean on because we're not tough-minded enough. So we believe in a God in order to give us comfort through the hardship and hard things of life. And on the face of it, right, that seems like a somewhat of a plausible argument. But if you dig down deeper into it, think about it really quick. What gives you more comfort? That there is a God who is holy, righteous, and just, and he will hold every thought, word, and deed that we've ever said done or felt into account and judge it with a strict justice that is a perfect standard of righteousness and the stakes of which are eternal does that give you more comfort 
Or does it give you more comfort to know that there is no God and that no matter how we live in this life and in this world, we'll have any consequence beyond when our heart stops beating? Which one gives you more confidence? Which one gives you more comfort? Paul says that we suppress the truth in unrighteousness, meaning we don't suppress the truth because there's good reasons not to believe in God. We suppress the truth because we don't want God to be true because it makes us profoundly uncomfortable to know that there's a just and righteous God of the universe. And because we're unrighteousness, because we are sinful and we love to live our life on our own terms, we willingly suppress that truth. F.F. Bruce, he's a Old Testament biblical commentator, one of the finest biblical commentators in the 20th century. He said that this suppression he calls a deliberate ignorance, a deliberate ignorance. He, he, he equates it kind of to having a beach ball. If you have a beach ball and you bring it to the pool and you try and push it down into the water, you can try with all your might, right, to hold that thing down. You can even sit on it and try and adjust accordingly to try and keep it down. But there's nothing to stop that from popping right back up. Same thing with suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. We can try and think up reasons why God does not exist, but all we're doing is trying to hold it down because of the discomfort of knowing there is a holy God who is wrathful toward our unrighteousness. And here's the principle, okay? I really want to drive this principle home because this is what you have to see from this passage. It's this, false beliefs and false living go hand in hand. Suppression of truth and unrighteousness go hand in hand. Here's what I mean by that. We often suppress the truth of God because either we or somebody who's in our family or somebody that we're really close to is walking in unrighteousness and we want to validate their way of life or our way of life. I'm reminded of the story, this is a famous evangelical preacher he lived in England during the uh, 1980s and 90s, and he had a 20-year preaching career. He was considered one of the finest preachers in the English language. And then in 1999, Cambridge newspapers and London newspapers came out with headlines that this preacher had left his wife and left his kids in order to marry another man. And some time and some years had passed by, and this man tried to hold in tension the biblical belief in God and his own divorce and unfaithfulness and adultery and homosexuality, and he tried to make them mold, and he, and he tried to do this for five, six, seven years, but ultimately after time, he completely disbelieved altogether, and he rejected the faith of following Jesus altogether. And here's the thing, friends, the greatest threat to the truth of God is not, hear me here, it's not secularism, it's not hedonism, it's not humanism, it's not atheism, it's not relativism, it's not pluralism, it's not any of the isms. It's our own hearts that love sin and want to suppress the truth of God. Here's the thing about that evangelical preacher. He read the same Bible you and I read. He believed the same Jesus you and I believe. The greatest threat is our own hearts that want to control our own lives and live 
in a life that we think will make us happy apart from God. So what do we do when we suppress the truth of God? We exchange God, don't we? We take the God of the Bible and this God who's holy and righteous and just, what do we do? We make him a little less holy and a little less just and a little less righteous. We make him a little bit more tolerant of our selfishness and our pride and our envy and our resentment and our greed. And what we do is all of a sudden this God starts to look a lot like us, doesn't he? And he starts overlooking the things in us that we probably shouldn't be overlooking. When you make a cake at home, just take a step back for a second. I want you to think of cake, okay? When you make a cake at home, there's only a couple recipes, or a couple ingredients, right? There's eggs, butter, milk, sugar, and flour. It's, it's pretty simple. Maybe cocoa, right, if you want a chocolate cake. And now, say you want to exchange those ingredients. So instead of eggs, you want yogurt. Instead of butter, you put in oil. Instead of milk, you put in water. You like sugar, so you keep sugar, but then you have flour, and instead you substitute cornmeal. What do you have? A mess, right? There's not a cake anymore. It's a mess. And that's the same thing that we do when we exchange God, suppress his truth. We do not get a God. We get a mess. A God who we keep all the things we like about him, things like his love, and we like the sugar of our creation, but we don't want any of the rest. But here's the ironic thing. When you remove the truth of God from who he is, you cease to have the God who truly is. When you have a God who is exclusively love and not wrathful, then what you have is no God at all. You have an image, a figment of your imagination. And here's the ironic thing. You want a God of exclusively love, but when you take away the parts you're uncomfortable with, you've removed the God who can personally actually love you and die for you. Because it's just a figment of your imagination, that God can never truly love you, and he can never sacrifice himself to pay for your sins and give you his righteousness. Do you see the irony there? So we exchange the truth of God for a lie, and then we exchange God himself. We trade up, or actually we trade down, and that's what Paul says in verse 21. He says, for although they knew God, they didn't honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So do you see Paul's logic here? He's saying because we are unrighteous in our life, we suppress the truth of God in our minds, and we exchange God in our hearts for images that will affirm and embrace our unrighteousness. And that's why God's wrath is revealed, and that's why we need the righteousness of God revealed. This is a good cheery passage, isn't it? <laughs> but one last question, okay? One last question. How is God's wrath revealed? How is it revealed? Well, the answer is this, is that God gives us over to our sin. That's how it's being revealed presently, is that God allows us to walk in our sin and allows us to walk through the door of choosing life apart from him. 
And you see that in verses 24, 26, and 28. Paul repeats this phrase. God gave them up to the lust of their hearts to impurity. That's verse 24. God gave them up to dishonorable passions. That's verse 26. God gave them up to a debased mind. That's verse 28. Meaning, God removes the restraint. He allows your heart and your mind to go in the direction that you want it to go. I have two uh, 11-month-old twins. We have baby gates around our house because we live on a tri-level. And if we remove those baby gates, right, we remove the restraint, nobody knows what's going to happen. At one moment, Hannah calls out to me. She's like, you forgot to close the baby gate. Jane's eating some drywall. Or you forgot to close the baby gate. Annie's eating a moth. That actually happened the other day, by the way. Or, you know, if, if, if we continue to allow the restraint to be removed, all of a sudden, things get more dangerous. Then they can start putting their hands near outlets. Then they can fall down a staircase. And see, Paul says when we suppress God's truth to indulge our unrighteousness, that's exactly what God does. And the ironic thing is, is the life that we think we have in a life apart from God becomes a life that's actually bitter and cold, unjoyful and unhappy. C.S. Lewis put it well. He said, God designed the human machine to run on himself. He himself is the fuel to our spirits that we were designed to burn or the food our spirits were designed to feed on. There is no other. That is why it is just no good asking God to make us happy in our own way and on our own terms based on our own truth. God cannot give us a happiness and peace apart from himself because it's not there. There is no such thing. Paul is saying you cannot find happiness in your sin any more than a car can run well on water. And the result of this is a downward spiral. That's what Paul means by this, he gave them up. So the downward spiral begins. Verse 24, Paul says, Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. That dishonoring is linking directly back up to verse 21, if you have your Bible open. That dishonoring refers to, since they didn't see fit to honor God, that is honor God with their bodies, God now gives them over to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. They're inflared with passions, so they dishonor their bodies in sexual immorality is what he's getting at. Then verses 26 and 27. It continues, For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. So now our passions, our affections, and our desires are no longer for our creator. And that's why our relationship to the rest of creation is distorted and twisted and marred. So God made this natural relationship, right? The most natural relationship is that man should be with God, the creator. And that was the primary relationship, this vertical relationship. And now that that's severed and twisted, our relationship with one another and with the natural order of things is twisted and distorted as well. So now the most basic and fundamental relationship that God has created, man and woman in holy marriage, 
is now twisted and distorted and severed. And now man no longer seeks sexual encounter with woman, but seeks it with man, distorting God's nature and doing that which is contrary to God's natural order. And the same thing with women. They distort and remove God's creation pattern in nature, and they're consumed with lust for one another, Paul says. They engage in sexual activity with one another. Homosexuality, as the Bible calls it. So we don't want God, so we exchange him. And now we don't want God's natural order for sexuality, so we exchange that. Simone Weil, who's an essayist, she puts it perfectly. She says that the essence of sin is not primarily the violation of laws, but a wrecked and ruined relationship with God, one another, and the whole created order. That's the tragedy of sin. And I know when I was first becoming a Christian, I always had this question, why such a big deal about sex? Christians always make such a big deal about sex. And it's interesting that Paul goes from violating God to sexual relations, right? Well, I want you to, I want you to think, I want you to think of the last 50 plus years of the sexual revolution that really started in the 1960s and the 1970s. I want to ask you, what have been the results? Are we better off than we were 60 or 70 years before the sexual revolution? All we've seen from the result of the sexual revolution has been the drastic rise in divorce, addiction to pornography, marital unfaithfulness, abortion, sex trafficking, all of which I, in some way, I'm sure am guilty of. And the answer is, wait, is God off base or are we off base here? Vince Vitale put it this way. He's an author. He said the history of sexual ethics in the last half century has proved that the Christian view of sex is not outdated, but it's the modern view of sex, which has severed sex from any proper meaning and purpose and context, which is outdated. We tried it, and it didn't work. Now, next week, we're going to discuss homosexuality in a little bit greater detail. And the reason that we're doing that is not because homosexuality is the capital sin. It's not. Because Paul is going to go and condemn every single one of us in these following verses. But here's the thing. We cannot underplay homosexuality, neither can we overplay it. And we want to talk about it in a little bit deeper terms for two reasons. The first is that our culture has an obsession with sex. And so it wouldn't be wise for us to not talk about the thing that our culture is obsessed with in order to somehow kind of steer an even ship, right? We want to address the problems that people have and the confusion that people have. And the Bible speaks about homosexuality. So we want to dive deeper into it. And so if you have a child and, you know, you maybe want to have that conversation at a different time, or maybe you think that it would be more appropriate to watch the sermon and watch it later as a family after you know what the content is, I totally respect that. I would encourage you, though, to think your children know a lot more than you would give them credit for. And the reality is they're going to be shaped in their view of sexuality either by you and the Bible or they're going to be shaped somewhere else. The second reason we want to talk about it is because every culture has particular things that they bring up that are in conflict with Scripture. No culture goes unaccused of any sort of sin pattern that they have enshrined in their culture. 
And it just so happens that the idea of same-sex relations is a very hot issue in our culture. So we want to be able to search the scriptures in its fullness and see what it says about those issues. So that'll be next week. But right now, Paul says this downward spiral continues. He, he continues it in verse 28. The final give them over. Paul says, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind, to what not ought be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness. See, notice, it started out of just doing bad things, doing unrighteousness. Now we're filled with it. We're filled with unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil. So before we were just engaging in evil, now, now we're inventing it, right? We've joined the other side. It's like you, you stop wanting to eat donuts for a month, right? And then you tell everybody, I'm going to stop eating donuts. But then on your way home from work, you just happen to drive by the donut shop and you roll down your window and you smell them like, right? Oh, donuts, I remember those. And then the next day you have to pick up a newspaper. So you go by the donut shop because you know there's a newspaper right by the donut shop, right? And then you think, oh, you know, I really want a cup of coffee. So I'm going to go get a cup of, you know who has a cup of coffee? The donut shop. So I'm going to go into the donut shop and I'm going to get a cup of coffee. And then once you're in the donut shop, you think, man, I'm, I'm really hungry. And the next thing you know, you're eating a donut. And then the next thing you know, you're wearing a sandwich board promoting donuts. Donuts, donuts here. And then the next thing you know, you, you've devoted your whole 401k over to donuts. That's how sin works, doesn't it? Am I the only one? No? You're lying. It's this downward spiral, right? We start doing sin, then we embrace sin, then we're filled with sin, then we start inventing sin. And then Paul says, verse 32, he says, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, that they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. So then the last part is we approve those who practice it. We actually start celebrating it. We walk down the wrong path that we choose, and then we start defending, right, the wrong path that we've chosen. And we start celebrating the path that we chose. It's like when I'm driving, I'm going 85, and my wife says, hey, I'm just looking at the GPS, we're going the wrong way. And I say, yeah, but we're making great time. Right? How absurd is this? But this is the bad news, that we do this. And nobody's without blame. Everybody does that. Michael Ramsden put it perfectly. He said, whenever you try to break God's law, you wind up proving God's law while breaking yourself in the process. Wow. Because God gives us over to our sin, we see his wrath revealed in creation. Can you understand when God gives us over, he's forsaking us to the path that we want. Now can you realize why Jesus on the cross said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? because he was being given over to the sin of the world and rejected by God, bearing the flood of God's wrath and the choices that we make and celebrate because he loves us. And now when the Bible talks about these two revelations, the revelation of his righteousness in the gospel of Jesus, 
and the revelation of his wrath against human unrighteousness and sin. The response to both is the same. The Bible says we are to flee. You flee the wrath to come. There's no other solution. It's not, hey, can I bargain with sin? Well, I kind of like sin. Can I just have a little bit of it? No, it's you flee it. And your entire life is this process of turning away from sin because you know that what the Bible says about it leads to your destruction and that happiness and well-being cannot be found there any more than a car can run on water. And it's this constant renewal of your mind that Paul's going to talk about later on in Romans that we have to constantly retrain ourselves when we sin to say, that wasn't right. God, forgive me for the sake of Jesus Christ. So we flee from the wrath that's being revealed and the wrath to come. But the most beautiful thing is it's not that we're fleeing from wrath to nothing. We flee from God's wrath to his righteousness revealed in Jesus. Because every time you sin, Jesus stood the test and was faithful and sinless in your place. And as we're about to sing in this song coming up, when you flee to the righteousness of God revealed in the gospel, you no longer have fear in life, no guilt in life, and no fear in death. Because Jesus and his righteousness has been given to you because you put your faith in him. Have these two lenses clear that though we are greatly unrighteous, a righteousness of God has been revealed that covers our sin and makes us right with God. Praise the one who made it possible, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you have revealed that you are good and we are not good. That you are righteous and we are covered in unrighteousness. Help us, God, please help us to see these things so clearly and so truly that it would crowd out any other false belief that would crowd into our thinking. And we pray, God, that you would continue, because you love us, to expose the unrighteousness in our hearts and in our minds so that we might flee to the only solution, your Son, who took on flesh to make us righteous, even though we deserve the wrath of God. God, we pray that you would seal these things to our hearts, seal these things to our mind, and renew our minds. Help us learn these basics so that we might grow into full maturity and growth in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray by the power of your spirit. Amen.